Welcome back to the Room Madness Podcast, the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I'm a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, quality improvement, corny jokes, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. I'm so glad you're here. I really enjoyed our previous episode, where I was joined by Dr. Aki Udupa, a rheumatology fellow, and Dr. Alan Witt, a resident at my institution. They did a fantastic job, and I really enjoyed our conversation about IgG4-related disease. This week, I'll be flying solo, but I think the topic for today will be a high yield for our listeners. This week, we're going to be focusing on relapsing polychondritis, a rare and poorly understood systemic inflammatory condition. In particular, we're going to focus on a really interesting paper published a few months ago that describes three major ways that relapsing polychondritis affects patients. This paper had a lot to teach me, and I'm excited to share it with you. But first, let's do our reminders from the previous episode on IgG4-related disease. This episode started with a brief primer about IgG4-related disease, where we described the major histopathologic features that characterize this condition, including a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate with lots of plasma cells in the infiltrate that are staining positive for IgG4. IgG4-related disease also characterized by a storyform fibrosis in a biopsy specimen, as well as obliterative phlebitis. We then discussed a paper that proposed a new set of classification criteria for IgG4-related disease. The highest yield learning points for me from this paper were the following. Number one, the paper describes a really useful set of exclusion criteria that really reduce the likelihood that someone has IgG4-related disease. For example, patients with true IgG4-related disease should not have unexplained leukopenia or thrombocytopenia or a biopsy showing prominent neutrophilic inflammation, necrotizing vasculitis, or granulomatous inflammation. The paper also had some wonderful inclusion criteria as well and descriptions of what this disease actually looks like, but I found these exclusion criteria a really helpful list for me clinically. My second major learning point from this paper was that many patients classified with IgG4-related disease in this really excellent large cohort described in the paper that included two validation sets for the classification criteria, many patients in these sets were not slam-dunk cases. In particular, 20% of cases with true IgG4-related disease had normal serum IgG4 levels. 9% didn't have a biopsy at all, and those that did, about 40% of patients with a biopsy didn't have the classic histopathologic findings that I just described, like storyform fibrosis. And about 40% didn't meet the previously defined cutoffs for the number of IgG4 positive staining plasma cells that you're supposed to have in the biopsy specimen. This really fits with my clinical experience with this disease, and highlights the importance of classification criteria like this, not just for research studies, which of course is the main reason these criteria were developed, but also for improving our understanding of how to approach these cases clinically. So those were my takeaways. Hopefully they were helpful reminders for you. What about you? What did you take away from that episode? I'd encourage you to go on the Room Madness Facebook group and tell us what you learned. All right, now to our topic for this week relapsing polychondritis. 
As always, I'm going to start with a brief primer about relapsing polychondritis in general to get everybody on the same page. To be honest, my guess is that many of you do not have really any or very little clinical experience with this condition. It is quite rare, though it is also very commonly missed and underrecognized, as we will discuss in great detail later. So it's a really important condition to understand. So what is relapsing polychondritis? In general, it's a systemic autoimmune condition that's characterized by an immunologic attack on cartilaginous structures. The exact underlying pathogenic mechanisms are not known. All we really know is that this condition uses both antibody and cell-mediated immunologic processes to attack multiple components of the extracellular matrix of cartilage. Usually, the cartilage is supposed to be an immunologically privileged site, and in this condition, there's somehow a break in tolerance for this type of tissue. In the majority of cases, relapsing polychondritis is an idiopathic condition that occurs by itself. However, it is important to know that up to maybe even a third of cases of relapsing polychondritis occur in patients with an underlying systemic condition. The best known clinical associations in this situation are the overlap of relapsing polychondritis with a systemic vasculitis, which can be really any type of vasculitis from the large to small vessels, including aortitis, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, Bichette syndrome, and many others. Another well-described clinical overlap syndrome is relapsing polychondritis that occurs in association with a myelodysplastic syndrome. This usually occurs in men either before, during, or after the myelodysplastic syndrome diagnosis. The main clinical manifestations of relapsing polychondritis depend on the type of cartilage that is inflamed. The classic and most prototypical clinical manifestations are recurrent ear inflammation, primarily the cartilaginous portions of the ear in particular, which is pretty much everything but the earlobe. Sometimes, chronic recurrent inflammation leads to scarring and damage in these structures so that the ears have what's been described as a cauliflower appearance. Recurrent inflammation of the nasal cartilage can lead to saddle nose deformity and septal perforation. There's also quite a bit of cartilage in the airways, so patients can develop subglottic stenosis, tracheomalacia, and or bronchomalacia, depending on the area of the respiratory tract involved. Multiple inflammatory eye conditions can occur as well, including episcleritis, scleritis, uveitis, and even orbital pseudotumor. Cardiac valvular dysfunction can occur due to inflammation of the cartilage in the valves. We, of course, wouldn't be rheumatologists if we also didn't talk about the joints in this condition, and relapsing polychondritis certainly affects those. In particular, relapsing polychondritis affects the chest wall, where a lot of cartilaginous structures, including the costochondral joints and other sternal locations. There can also be a non-erosive inflammatory arthritis and tenosynovitis of the peripheral joints. Finally, a variety of skin lesions can occur, most of which are nonspecific and usually a consequence of overlapping systemic vasculitis. So that's relapsing polychondritis in a very brief nutshell. Now, getting to our main topic for today, the paper I'll be discussing is by Marcella Ferrada and others in a group led by Peter Grayson at the NIH. The paper is titled Defining Clinical Subgroups in Relapsing Polychondritis, 
a prospective observational cohort study. It was published in August 2020 in Arthritis and Rheumatology. I have a link to the reference in the show notes. This is a fascinating paper with many important clinical observations, and there's a lot to talk about. But first, I'll attempt to summarize this paper in one sentence. Here goes. This group used unbiased statistical methods to categorize a prospective cohort of 73 patients with relapsing polychondritis into three subgroups, demonstrating that relapsing polychondritis is more than just a random combination of ear, nose, and airway inflammation, and describing why it is so important for us to understand the major ways this clinical disease presents Okay, that was a really long sentence, but it was one sentence, and it did summarize the paper, so there were just a lot of commas. But does this sound interesting to you? I certainly think so. This paper really caught my eye as something that I can use as a clinical rheumatologist. So let's get into the details of what they did. The patient population studied in this paper is a prospective cohort of 73 patients with relapsing polychondritis seen at the NIH. Unlike the few other observational cohorts in the literature that have been described in this condition, in this cohort, all of the patients underwent comprehensive standardized clinical examinations and had their disease features categorized with standard definitions. In general, all of the patients had a full standardized physical examination, laboratory studies including inflammatory markers, ANCUS testing, and various other serologies, audiology testing, and a standardized assessment of the airways, including a CT scan of the chest, pulmonary function tests, and direct laryngoscopy by an ENT provider. Of note, a bronchoscopy was not part of the standardized exam, but was performed based on symptoms. I will just pause here and say that while I'm not going to read their standard definitions of the major disease features of relapsing polychondritis, If you ever have a patient that you suspect has this condition, I would strongly recommend that you read the methods section of this paper to see how an expert group like this one at the NIH defines things like ear chondritis, tracheomalacia, and other clinical features of this condition. It is clear and concise, so kudos to the authors. It is also important to point out here that all of these patients met the standard diagnostic criteria for relapsing polychondritis, but none of the patients in this cohort had an underlying myelodysplastic syndrome, other malignancy, or overlapping rheumatologic disorder like vasculitis. As we mentioned before, about a third of cases of relapsing polychondritis are related to myelodysplastic syndromes or other systemic vasculitides. So it's important to point out and understand that this population is describing primarily idiopathic relapsing polychondritis. So how did they analyze this cohort? They performed latent class analysis, which is an unbiased method of partitioning a group into subgroups using predefined input variables. Basically, fancy stats that are not biased, that take some input criteria and give you groups. Without getting into the analytic weeds here, it is important to know that the predefined input variables that the authors essentially put into the computer were ones that the group considered to represent objective cartilaginous involvement. 
In plain English, this means that the data they fed into the latent class analysis machine were objective things like subglottic stenosis visualized on laryngoscopy, not subjective symptoms of subglottic stenosis like strider, cough, or wheezing. Okay, getting to the results. The authors found that the best model for their cohort divided patients into three subgroups, which they call type 1, type 2, and type 3 relapsing polychondritis. Type 1 relapsing polychondritis is essentially the classic form of this condition. All of these patients had ear chondritis, and the vast majority also had saddle nose deformity, subglottic stenosis, and tracheomalacia. About a half of them had joint involvement, hearing loss, and or inflammatory eye disease. Basically, if you open up a textbook about relapsing polychondritis, this is what you're going to read about. Therefore, it's not surprising to note that these patients had the shortest time to diagnosis, with a median of about one year from symptom onset. However, it might surprise you to note that this subgroup was the least common of the three types in their study, representing just 14% of the patients. Yikes! To me, this means we had better pay attention to the clinical features of the other two subtypes rather than just the textbook descriptions if we're really going to know what this disease does to patients. So, type 2 relapsing polychondritis describes patients with predominantly lower airway disease. All of these patients had tracheomalacia, and many had bronchomalacia. However, none of these patients had a saddle nose deformity or subglottic stenosis, which are really more upper airway problems. Furthermore, less than a half of these patients had ear involvement. This group comprised 29% of the cohort, and it probably doesn't surprise you to hear that this group had the longest time to diagnosis. You might remember the time to diagnosis in type 1 relapsing polychondritis in this cohort was one year. In type 2 relapsing polychondritis with this predominantly lower airway disease, the median time to diagnosis was 10 years from symptom onset. That is a horribly long time. To me, it is incredibly important to know that this subgroup exists and is, at least in this cohort, more common than the classic type of relapsing polychondritis. These are the patients that are told that they have asthma, anxiety, paradoxical vocal cord dysfunction, and a multitude of other conditions before getting their diagnosis, by which time there's a lot of irreversible damage. So very important to understand their description of type 2. Now, type 3 relapsing polychondritis was actually the most commonly encountered subgroup in their study, comprising 58% of the cohort. This group had more variable and less severe clinical manifestations. The most common clinical manifestations in this group were synovitis and tinnosynovitis in 60%, ear chondritis in 55%, and inflammatory eye disease in 26%. Really, it appears that the main thing that defined this group wasn't really what they had, but really what they didn't have. None of these patients had lower airway involvement with tracheomalacia or bronchomalacia, and only a few had saddle nose deformity or subglottic stenosis. Importantly, although on paper it seems that this group had a milder form of the disease, the authors are quick to point out that many of these patients still suffered quite a bit, with 12% requiring ICU admission, 26% of them on disability, and most had active disease, 
by physician assessment despite steroids and DMARD therapies. So it is important to recognize these patients, even though they don't fit the classic description for type 1 relapsing polychondritis, because even this milder form still had a substantial impact on patients' quality of life. So to summarize, the minority of patients in this group had type 1 relapsing polychondritis, which is the classic textbook type of relaxing polychondritis with substantial ear inflammation, nose inflammation, subglottic stenosis, and tracheomalacia. Many patients in this study had type 2 relapsing polychondritis, which was defined primarily by lower airway involvement of the trachea and bronchial regions. And these patients in particular had a long delay in diagnosis. Finally, the most common form of relapsing polychondritis were patients with type 3 disease, which presented with varying amounts of ear, joint, and eye involvement, with very little overt cartilage damage to the nose, subglottis, trachea, or bronchial regions. The authors do a wonderful job of describing these groups and pointing out that no matter how they presented, all of these patients suffered substantially from their disease and required aggressive treatment. Now, if you're a visual person, first of all, sorry, you're listening to a podcast, but if you're a visual person, you should know that another really cool feature of this paper is a figure that they created for each of the three subtypes, with the main anatomical locations affected in each type highlighted in red. It's a great figure, and it will really stick in your brain if you stare at it for a few minutes, so I'd really encourage you to find this paper and find that figure in particular. I do think... There are a few limitations to this paper that are worth mentioning. First, these were patients that were seen at the NIH. How likely are these patients going to be similar to those that show up in my office or other offices around the world? That is unclear to me, and I do think it's possible that the classic cases of relapsing polychondritis are less common in their cohort, maybe because they're more commonly recognized and treated appropriately in the community and not referred to the NIH. It's hard to say for sure. The authors also pointed out that it's unknown if patients can change subgroups over time, and there's more work that needs to be done to describe the implications of these subgroups on immunologic mechanisms and response to treatment. I suppose all great research studies open the door to more great research studies, and that truth is really apparent here. Finally, you should not get the impression that this paper gives you a full clinical picture of the kinds of things relapsing polychondritis can do. As described earlier, the authors really focused on objective clinical features involving cartilaginous structures. This helped them classify patients, but it does not describe in great detail other clinical features that can occur such as, variety, such as a variety of skin lesions, orbital pseudotumors, or valvular dysfunction due to the involvement of cartilaginous components of the heart valves. And, as stated earlier, none of these patients had an overlap with other systemic vasculitides or an underlying myelodysplastic syndrome, which occurs in about a third of patients with this condition. All right, that's really it for this week. I hoped you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for joining me as we took a deep dive into relapsing polychondritis. I really do think this paper is worth reading and knowing, as I think it will help us think about our patients and avoid missing important diagnoses. I also think this topic would be a great contender in the Room Madness Tournament. If you're listening to this podcast, you are likely already aware that in March, there's going to be a tournament called Room Madness, in which rheumatology topics will compete against each other as teams in a March Madness-style bracket to determine which topic is the most important rheumatology topic of the year. 
If you are a trainee of any type, including fellows, residents, medical students, advanced practice provider trainees, or really any other type of medical trainee with an interest in rheumatology, I would invite you to join the Room Madness Facebook group to learn more about the tournament, connect with your peers, and tell me what you think about this podcast episode. Perhaps relapsing polychondritis would be a great team to compete in the first round of the tournament against last week's topic on the new IgG4 related disease classification criteria. Both are great papers that give us wonderful insight into rare but serious conditions. I don't know. You all join the group and tell me what you think. Thanks again for joining me and see you next time on the Room Madness Podcast. 